Turn your Bible to Joel chapter 2. We're going to do a little bit of a review for two reasons. One, it was two weeks ago. And two, because we need to put this in context, and I want to do that rather carefully before we move on to chapter 3. Now these particular passages, we're, we're looking at what I believe is perhaps the most in-depth description of the reason why the tribulation occurs. And so as you're looking at the book of Joel, it really gives us the explanation of why God's wrath is being stored up and one day it will be poured out on this earth. It's not a pleasant subject, but it is a profitable subject because it it teaches us to number our days. It teaches us to remember that the time is short. It teaches us the brevity of the age of grace. It reminds us that we have a solemn obligation before the Lord to remember that the people who are here on this earth that don't know Jesus don't have an indefinite amount of time to do that. And we don't know when the age of grace is going to end. I have no idea if the Lord's going to you know, sound the trumpet tonight. I don't know if it's going to be next week, next month, next year, or in my lifetime, in a practical sense. But because I know my Bible, I know it's late in the game. I know that we are much, much closer than we were even uh, 50 years ago. When you look at the founding of the nation Israel till today, no one that's alive today would have ever guessed that we would be where we are uh, and in the condition that the world is in currently. We we wouldn't have guessed it. And in fact, most people predicted that the world uh, would get a hold of the problems that ail us and that we would ultimately solve many of these conditions that exist and that somehow the planet would become softer and kinder and gentler and we'd do away with disease and before you know it, you know, people would be living uh, hundreds of years and all those kind of things. And frankly, we've affected it very little. And in fact, in many ways, uh, the world is far worse than it's ever been. And so as we begin tonight, I want you to remember that God's word says, one day, all Israel is going to be saved. Israel is the clock. They are the way that we view the world prophetically. So goes the nation Israel, and as it goes, so goes the world with regard to the age of grace. And so is the various things that are revealed to us in Scripture become quite clear. We know that we are getting close to the end. And so it is with that that we draw our attention back to chapter 2, and we'll take probably the first 16 verses of chapter 3 tonight, but let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. Lord, we look forward uh, to the day when you call us home. But in the meantime, we want to be preciously guarding our days and making use of them for your kingdom, for your plans, for your purposes. Lord, for grace to be made known to anyone who will listen. God, we pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We pray for the Jewish people. 
Lord, we pray for their neighbors. Lord, those Arab nations that surround the many of the people there. Uh, Lord, do know you. And Father, we know that you defend the innocent. And so God, we believe with all of our heart that one day when you are by your plan pouring out the very worst of your wrath on this earth, those that believe in your name will be spared. And so God, that's the answer being found in Christ Jesus. Speak to us tonight through the power of your word. Bless us as we hear it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 32 here, For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. Very important verse because it ties in exactly with what Paul said in Romans chapter 11. And you remember that verse that in that day, in the very last days, all Israel will be saved. And from now until that time, your Bible does not say that the world's going to get better. It may go through times we don't know of perhaps things improving for a short period of time. But because the clock started ticking in 1948, we know that there's not an indefinite amount of period, an indefinite period of time that's yet left before the events that are described in Matthew chapter 24, the book of Zechariah and chapters 12, 13, and 14, and more than half of the book of Revelation. And so those things will one day unfold on this earth. And there is a reason for it. And that reason is the salvation of national Israel. It's the salvation of the Jewish people. It is to bring them to that place that is spoken about here uh, in verse 28, 29, 30. And, And it says there that your old men shall dream dreams, your young men visions, your maidservants, and I will pour out, verse 29 says, my spirit in those Days. I want you to think about a few things for a moment. If you read Zechariah chapter 13, you're going to find out it's not a pretty picture. And in fact, it says there in verse 8, And it shall come to pass in all of the land, speaking of the children of Israel, says the Lord, that two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die, and one-third will be left in it. That's two-thirds of the whole of Israel. That's a lot of dead people. If it happened today, that would be someplace in the neighborhood of four to six million people would die. Now, to give you an idea, that's more than the sum and total of World War I, World War II, and every war that we've had after talking about massive warfare. Why would God allow that? Just ask yourself the question. If God is just and God is fair and God is love and God is kind and God is tender and God is long-suffering, why would he allow in the land of his own people two-thirds of them to die? Some questions for you. Romans 11 says at the same time, God is going to supernaturally bring about a remnant of people that will be left in the land of Israel. Those things sound almost contradictory. 
and yet they're simultaneously true. He also says at the same time they're going to be born again. Your Bible says that the city of Jerusalem, which means the city of peace, amen? Salam is peace. It's the city of peace is going to be the most violent city on earth. That Israel will be the most violent land on earth. And yet, all who call upon the name of the Lord, your Bible says, will be saved. Sounds contradictory, doesn't it? You see, there's a point to it. And so there is a point to the rule and to the reign of the Antichrist. There's a point to these things that we saw described at the end of chapter 2. And notice it says, I'll show you wonders in the heavens and in the earth. And behold, blood and fire and pillars of smoke and the sun shall be darkened. The moon turned into blood. And therefore, the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And notice the timing. It's before it. Before the Lord comes again, these things will happen. You guys are students of your Bible. When does the Lord come again? At the end of of the tribulation. So when are all these things going to happen? None other than the time of the tribulation. These are all things directly related to the tribulation. And so when you look at them, uh, it, this isn't the only place these things are found. The book of Haggai, and I've put these scriptures up for you. The book of Luke, of course, that's the Olivet Discourse. Uh, Jesus himself speaking, same thing in Matthew 24. Revelation chapter 6, Isaiah chapter 13, effecting things that we don't think can be affected. Mankind goes around just kind of wandering. It's like, oh, well, the sun will just keep burning, and the moon will keep turning, and the universe will keep spinning, and we're all going to be okay. And yet your Bible says, book of Colossians speaks very specifically that the Lord Jesus himself is the one who holds all things together. And when he says that he's no longer going to hold it together, the fabric of the universe itself is going to be transformed and changed. You see, physicists look at the world through a very specific set of rules and guidelines, laws, that are immutable as far as they're concerned. They're unchanging. They don't change. And they believe that the world and everything that is on it and the universe and everything that's in it plays by those rules because they do not believe largely, many of them, if not most of them, in the God who is the Creator. And the God who is the Creator says, I actually hold together atomic matter. I'm the one who keeps those electrons and protons and neutrons going where they're supposed to go. And so as you look at these things that are going to happen, it seems like they can't happen. They seem like impossibilities. But if the God who created the universe decides that he wants to use the universe for his purposes, don't you think that he can do exactly what he says he's going to do here? Look at that passage in Haggai there. I will shake the heaven and the earth, it says in Haggai chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. And actually, that whole chapter is like this. The sea, the dry land. Doesn't that sound like earthquakes to you? 
Does it sound like heavenly events? Have you ever wondered, for those of you who wonder about such things, I know most of you don't lie awake at night wondering what would happen if a couple of galaxies crashed into each other, but I am one of those weirdos that actually thinks about things like that. Now I can tell you this, the effect of two galaxies colliding with one another would be the destruction of the known universe. That's what would happen. It would unleash amounts of energy that we don't even have any way to calculate. And it would ripple through what we call our time-space continuum. That's what would happen. You think stars collapsing that create black holes, things of that nature, all of a sudden on a universal scale begin to happen. And if Jesus, in fact, does hold the entire universe together, what if he takes his hand off of a galaxy or two? Is it really all that difficult to imagine then that these things would happen? I will shake the heaven and the earth, the dry sea, the dry land. I will shake the nations. They'll come to the desire of all nations, and I will fill his temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. And then he goes down to verse 22. I will shake heaven and earth. I will overthrow the kings of the kingdoms, and I will destroy the strength of the Gentile kingdoms. You see, we think that we're in charge, we being mankind. Amen? We think that we're the ones who control our own destiny. Matter of fact, you talk to most people who are either atheists or agnostic. They believe in nothing but things that can be logically explained, and there is nothing outside of the laws of physics and science. Basically, the universe runs the way it runs because that's what it does. Your Bible says that there is a God that dwells outside of space and time that controls everything. And so these things that you're seeing must have a purpose because God does not do anything uh, just because he had a bad day. God doesn't get up in the morning, well, I am just tired of the earth and you know, fries the earth. There is a grander, greater purpose for everything that God does. Jesus says there in Luke 21, there will be great earthquakes in various places and famines and pestilences. There will be fearful sights and great signs. He goes on in Luke 21, verses 25 and 26, there will be signs in the sun, on the moon, the stars, and on the earth, distresses of nations and perplexity. In other words, things that cannot be explained. It becomes very clear to me when I look at the whole picture, not an obscure verse or two, but the whole picture of what Scripture says, that God plans to turn our universe upside down. Not just our world upside down, but literally what we know as the immutable laws of, of physics, astronomy, astrophysics, all of those things that we would say, well, you know, there's no way that there's another star going to come into this particular solar system. Really? And we know that because? Because man says so. God says, I'm going to shake the heavens. But what happens when he just says, eh, I'm going to just kind of let that little giant sun over there start spinning towards Earth? doesn't have to get very close to throw off the gravitational systems of every body in, the, in our solar system, that's for sure. Book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 6. The sun became black as sackcloth of hair. That phrase, sackcloth of hair, was they wove a cloth so tightly as a sack that it could hold water. And the picture is, when you looked inside of one, it was pitch black. In other words, the sun's going to 
be turned off. If you know anything about the sun, it's nothing more than a nuclear engine. That's all it is. A very big one and a very hot one, but compared to a lot of stars in, in the universe, kind of small, actually. It's not horribly huge. What if God decides I'm pulling the batteries out, the energizer bunny of the sun? Just Couldn't he do that? Stars of heaven fell to earth as a fig tree drops its late figs. Those of you that have ever been outside during the Perseid meteor showers, you look up there and you go, man, where are all these things going and where are they coming from? Then you realize that most of them are nothing bigger than a speck of dust. Can you imagine if we actually ran, you know, all of a sudden God decided, well, I'm just going to let that little meteor belt just pass right over the earth or whatever. God alone holds those things in his hand. And, and it goes on and on, the book of Isaiah. And so these things that people dismiss, quite frankly, very quickly, are not a big deal for God. He could do them easily. He goes on to say that there's going to be wonders actually on the earth. So in the heavens and on the earth. Here at the end of chapter 2. And again, when you look at these things, you kind of at first glance go, and you know, some catastrophic event involving blood. And then look at what your Bible says. Revelation chapter 6 says that the blood of the martyrs, the blood of those killed in, in the battle of Armageddon, is going to raise up to the level of a horse's bridle. It's a couple of meters deep. That's a lot of blood. You see, we look at it and we go, oh, that just can't happen. And then you start thinking, well, you know, think about some of the things that happen on this earth. Red tide, things that, you know, affect large swaths of the ocean. There's all kinds of things that could happen uh, that we just don't see very regularly that how do we know what God has planned? And so blood being listed there. In Revelation 16, it says this in verses 3 and 4, and then the second angel. Of course, these are the angels that come with the trumpet, the bowl judgments. This one happens to be the bowl judgment. It says, He pours out His bowl in the sea, and it became blood as of a dead man. Every living creature in the sea died. It would be kind of interesting if the global warming alarmists kind of got their wish, huh? Except for a very different reason. That actually the Lord said the end is the end and it's here and I am killing off every flipper known to man. All the whales you've been protecting, I'm finishing them off right here, right now. And again, I happen to love whales and dolphins, so don't mistake what I'm saying here. But when God says it's over, it's over. And no amount of Greenpeace folks out there with fire hoses shooting at tuna ships are going to change it. It isn't going to happen. As much as we need to take care of the animal life on this planet, and we need to take care of our planet because it's where we live, there's going to come a point in time when this earth is done. In fact, matter of fact, God says, I'm going to make a new one. He talks about fire. Matter of fact, it's going to be thrown from heaven in Revelation 8. It's going to burn a third of the trees uh, there also in Revelation 8. It's, it's going to kill multitudes in Revelation 9. It's the two witnesses. Remember those guys, likely Moses and Elijah. They're actually going to have the power to call fire from heaven. Imagine that going on. 
So there are significant things that we have a tough time looking at going, oh man, I just can't imagine that ever happening. The problem is exactly what we think. It's we can't imagine it. And yet your Bible says it. And though we can't imagine it, that doesn't mean that your Bible's not true. And that's been the problem with mankind. Mankind has chosen to disbelieve the Bible and believe only what they can think. And that is a very dangerous place. It's exactly what got the Jewish people in trouble. Because they did not believe the word of the Lord. They believed the word of man. They sought after the word of man. And they paid the price that includes them going into captivity up until this very day, really, until they became a nation in 1948. They were in that mindset of, well, God would never do that. And yet not only did he do that, He's also going to be true to what he said would be the reason that he is going to bring it to a close one day. And we find that as we get to chapter 3. And so all these things, and if you want to jot these scriptures down, you can, you can look at them later. But the false signs, the wonders, the things that happen, they're throughout your Bible. They're not obscure little tidbits of scripture. And for sake of time tonight, because they're just touched on in the book of Joel, and they're elaborated on in other books, we're not going to get into detail on them tonight. But as you look at them, don't dismiss them because they seem otherworldly. Your God lives in the other world. Amen? Not this world. He's in the unseen world. And from that world, he controls everything in this world. It is not the other way around. And so those wonders that we think can't happen because we have no scientific explanation for them. I feel very sorry for the people who don't believe God is being truthful when he says, I might make stars fall from heaven, or I might turn a river into blood, or I might allow battles that destroy two-thirds of the nation of Israel. Ultimately, almost three-quarters of the population of the world will be lost during the tribulation. Now, the reason that I've taken the time to do this is this reason. It has a purpose. It's not arbitrary. It's not God was mad. And so as we look at these things, as we get to chapter 3, it says there in verse 1, the Antichrist is going to rule and reign. The first three and a half years of his reign will be reign of peace. I've shared with you previously I believe that it will be, in fact, the rise of Russia and the Arab allies that currently surround Israel is the reason the Antichrist will actually be able to be successful in his rise to power. I believe that he will be the answer to that problem. And as Daniel says, after the first three and a half years, he's going to break his peace treaty with Israel, and then literally all hell will break loose on this earth. And he will actually become what we find in the remainder of the prophetic passages that are not very pleasant to look at. And so it says there in verse 1 of chapter 3, as we look at it, For behold, in those days and at that time, extremely important that you understand 
that it is only in those days and at that time that these things are being prophetically spoken to us. In other words, there are things that are only going to happen once. Have they been typed before? World wars? Yes. But when you look at the sum and total of what's done in all of these passages of Scripture, they've never happened before, they will only happen once, and they will never happen again in those days and at that time. When I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem, do you get the picture here that this is all about Israel? It's extremely important that you do. Because if you allegorize these passages of Scripture, then you start believing these things are just things that have happened figuratively throughout history, and they will continue figuratively throughout history, and they will happen periodically in time, and we will all just sit here as one big happy lump, and none of these things will ever actually happen. And to do that is to miss the whole point. Because as we sit here tonight, all Israel is not saved. Amen? The Spirit of the living God is not poured out on all Israel. Amen? And yet they are back in the land. Amen? So the timing is, once they are back in the land of Judah and Jerusalem, they will actually be taken captive again. That's going to happen when Russia invades. That's going to happen when the Gog-Magog battles unfold. And ultimately, God says, Oh, no, you're not. I'm going to take care of my people. And so, now we come to this odd place that's mentioned here uh, in verse 2. I will also gather all nations. How many nations? So if your Bible says all, what do you think it means? Do you think it means one or two? Do you think it means just the U.S. of A.? No, it means all. And in fact, the Hebrew word that's used here for all is used only in explaining the sum and totality of all that is known about any subject. It literally means all. All of everything that we know about nations. It's the totality of the world's nations. It's not just a nation. It's not nations that are in the general vicinity. It's every last nation on earth. I will gather all nations. And I want you to notice what's said next because it's extremely important. From this you get the timing and the location. And I will bring them down. When we go from north to south, we call that going down. Amen? The same is inferred here from the Hebrew text. I will bring them down. When we talk about heading towards the equator, we are going down. Someone who's in the southern hemisphere, when they go from southern Brazil to what we would call northern Brazil, they're actually going down. They're going towards the equator. That's the inference here. I will bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Where in the world is that? Notice here, you know, I've got a series of slides here to put it into perspective for you that actually show you where this is reference to. If you go to modern Jerusalem today, uh, that is actually taken from the city of David, looking out over uh, the Kadron Valley. And as you get to the Kadron Valley, which is 
this area right here. This is the Hinnom Valley over here. So that is south, that direction. That is the Mount of Olives right there. So when you think about these things, you need to put it into perspective. When David left his city, this is the location of the entrance of Hezekiah's tunnel. When Hezekiah dug that tunnel, it descended into the springs of Gehon and down into the, the valley uh, below, which is down in this particular region. There's actually a confluence down here, and this is the area that the kings used to go and judge the nations. And so I'll give you a couple of, couple other looks here. Go ahead and flip that next slide. So is it where that picture was taken from is up there looking down. Now you can see almost down to the bottom of the valley floor. This is actually the confluence of two valleys. It's located in this region right here. There's another valley, and it meets right here. And so as Hezekiah, Hezekiah's tunnel exits the top of the Temple Mount, or very near the top of the Temple Mount in the city of David, descends down, this would be to the east, uh, Dead Sea is that direction, Jordan's that direction, that way is the Mediterranean Sea. And so next slide. Now in the very bottom of this valley, so you've gone from the very top to the very bottom. So how many of you have seen The Kingdom of Heaven, that movie with Brad Pitt where he goes and, yeah, you've seen it. It's an R-rated movie, but if you see it on TV, rather interesting movie. It's about as fake as you can get, because you remember the, the city of Jerusalem there? It's on a flat plain in the middle of the desert. Does that look like a flat plain in the middle of the desert to you? Nah, it's very, very hilly around Jerusalem. This is actually the bottom. So on the bottom here, what you have is the pillar of Absalom. You have the tomb of James. You have the tomb of the martyrs. And every single thing that you see up there is nothing but a bunch of graves. This was called the Valley of Jehoshaphat. And the reason being that the Jews believed that when you were dead, you were judged. So they planted their dead in the Valley of Jehoshaphat where they would be judged. Next slide. So... That was taken from down there. So the original photo from right there, right below the Temple Mount. This is the Al-Aqsa Mosque, Dome of the Rock. This is the Temple Mount. The old city of Jerusalem is directly behind it. Down into the Kidron Valley, the Hinnom Valley. This way, the whole of the Mount of Olives is now nothing but a giant cemetery. Why? Because the Valley of Jehoshaphat is right there. That was the place that people were to be judged. So when they died, they were judged. Next slide, please. Also in the bottom of that valley is the, is the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus was judged and found guilty, at least by Judas. You remember the story. These, actually, these olive trees, that one right there, this one over here, are believed to have been there from the time of Christ. Next slide, please. So there's Jehoshaphat. There's, there's Jerusalem. There's a valley. So... Directly running this way is the Kadron. This way is the Hinnom Valley, Valley of Jehoshaphat. People confuse these two valleys because they think this means Megiddo. Now you know why it says, I will bring them down. Because this is at the end of the tribulation. This judgment is when God is going to judge the people for the final time. And they're not going to like what's going to happen. Valley Battle of Armageddon has happened. The people that have survived that Zechariah says there's not going to be very many of them left, are going to come down to Jerusalem, and God himself will judge them in the Valley of Jehoshaphat. Next slide, please. That's the Valley of Megiddo, a little different place. So when you read this, read it correctly. For behold, in those days, one time, one time only, 
at that time, one time, one only, one place, when I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem, the ones that were taken captive because of the battle of Armageddon. This is speaking of the second coming of the Lord after the tribulation of days. The Antichrist has had his rule and reign on earth. He's done his dirty deeds. He's fought to the end, and the Lord himself has returned with you and I and everybody else, the tribulation saints, the whole gang, and we are now coming back to rule with the rod of iron. And it says, And I will gather all the nations and bring them down from Megiddo from the north to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there. And now he tells us why. What's going to happen to Israel in the last days? They're all going to get the Spirit of the Lord put upon them. Amen? On account of three things. My people, my heritage, Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations, and they have divided up whose land? God's land. So when you look at modern Israel today, what you're going to see is a country that's about as divided up as a country can get and still be a country. You have three territories that have now been claimed by the Palestinian Liberation Organization. That would be the West Bank, which is a large area to the east of Jerusalem on the western bank of the Jordan River. That's why it's called the West Bank. You have the Golan Heights, which is the area that's directly north and to the east of the Sea of Galilee that actually travels up into Syria. All of those regions, God says, are my land. And he gave them to his people, Israel. Amen? So when we talk about dividing up the land of Israel... Who are we actually against? We're against God. Because it's his land, and they're his people. So when we, as Americans, have been defending Israel for all these years, and all of a sudden we turn and we decide, well, we're going to join the UN, and we're going to join the EU, and we're going to befriend the Palestinian Liberation Organization, Hamas, the Muslim Brotherhood, and we're going to do what's best for them, whose side are we on now? As far as these events are concerned, we're on the wrong side. We're on the side of the enemy. And he says, so, they have divided up my land. They've cast lots for my people. Notice what they've done. They've attacked God's sovereignty. They've attacked God's people. And they've divided up his land. They've given a boy as payment for a harlot. They've sold a girl as wine that they may drink. Do you remember what the Nazis did? This is exactly what they did. They took Jewish children and they bartered them. The Jews are now back in that land. And so we gave them land and then we began to divide it up. Amen? Very poignant picture here. For indeed, what, I have, what have you to do with me? Notice what he says, O Tyre and Sidon. You know where those are. It's modern-day Lebanon. Did you know that modern-day Lebanon, which used to be the ancient kingdom of Phoenicia, when Lebanon became a country, you realize it was 86% Christian? You know what it is today? 2% Christian. 
98% Muslim. Tyre and Sidon. All the coast of Philistia. Do you know where that is? That would be the other occupied territory occupied by Arabs inside of Israel. That's the Gaza Strip. Will you retaliate against me? Remember that the reason that God comes, Jesus himself comes back and fights the battle of Armageddon, is because the whole world is against the Jews. And as the Jewish people become a larger focus in the last days, you can absolutely count on the fact that God is warming up the horses in heaven. Will you retaliate against me? But if you retaliate against me swiftly and speedily, I will return to your retaliation and I'll return it upon your own head. He says, go ahead. It's basically challenging the nations of the earth. Now do you know why we need to be ardent supporters of Israel? God says, go for it, all you nations of the world, you who divide up my land, spit on my nation Israel, spit on my people, you go for it. You're going to retaliate against me? I'll turn it back on your own head. Because you've taken notice, my silver, my gold, and have carried into your temples my prized possessions. Remember what happened when the temple was sacked under Titus? They carried away all the instruments of the temple. God hasn't forgotten about that. And also the people of Judah and the people of Jerusalem, he counted them as his own. You've sold them to the Greeks that you may remove them far from their borders. We call that the diaspora. Amen? They were removed from their borders. Behold, I will raise them out of the place which you have sold them. And I will return your retaliation upon your own head. He says it again, in case he didn't get it the first time. And I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah. He says, I'm going to make Israel the rulers of the world. Matter of fact, your Bible says that Jesus, in fact, is going to rule and reign from Jerusalem. And they will sell them to the Sabaeans, a people far off. For the Lord has spoken. So they scattered God's people, their heritage, his heritage, Israel amongst the nations. They divided up God's land and they enslaved the Jewish people. What is the world trying to do again right now? Divide up God's land, enslave the Jewish people, and sell them off to other countries. God says once they get back in the land, that will never happen again. But there will be a war. And so I believe we sit on the very edge of that particular time in history. When's it going to happen? I'm not really sure. And I don't want to pretend that I do know. But I can tell you this. Dividing up God's land, enslaving the Jewish people has never boded well for anybody. And so if you're on the side of the PLO, the Muslim Brotherhood, Hamas, the Palestinian Authority, you are on the wrong side. And you will one day be on the side that directly is against God, and God says, I'll pull your retaliation and place it on your own head. So these sins that God says are against the nation of Israel and against his land and against his people, one day he's going to bring an end to, and he calls it, 
uh, in Jeremiah chapter 30, the time of Jacob's trouble. Because the nation Israel, known as Jacob at one point in time, amen, the sons of Jacob, will be the focus of it. And so the Lord causes these enemies of war uh, to be brought to the valley. It's likely the Kadron Valley. There are the Valley of Jehoshaphat, this, this place. And, and I want to give you a little picture. There's been some pretty major goings on in that exact place from the time of Christ. That's the exact place that Jesus entered the city on his triumphal entry. That's the east side of the eastern gate. What you were looking at on the Temple Mount, that was the eastern side. That's the eastern gate. So Jesus came into Jerusalem from that side. That's the location of the Garden of Gethsemane. That's where he wept over the world. That's where he sweat giant drops of blood, as it were. It's the likely place uh, that he was last seen after the resurrection. Remember, he went to the Mount Olives, and Zechariah chapter 14 says Jesus is coming again to the Mount of Olives. So basically what God is saying is, This has been where I have judged mankind all along. Because you and I got judged in the garden, didn't we? Jesus said, I'll I'll pay for their sins. I'll go to the cross. So you can either have the Lord for you. What does God's word say? What did Jesus say? You are either for me or you are against me. Is there any other side? You're one or the other. So when God says, when Jesus spoke and he said in the Olivet Discourse that I am going to divide the sheep and the goats, he was saying the same thing. When he said there will be wheat and tares, he said the same thing. When he said there are two roads, one broad that leads to destruction and one narrow that leads unto life, he said said the same thing. God has always judged mankind. For the last 2,000 years, he's been judging us based on the merits of the blood of Christ. And mankind has looked at that and very often has spit on grace. So now we don't want that. God's one day going to have had enough of that. And that's the reason for the tribulation of days. That's the reason for the in that day. That's the reason for the final days. That's the reason for what we call the tribulation. It is God saying, enough. I'm making one last judgment. I'm gathering them together. And after that judgment, there's going to be the saints and the ain'ts. No in-betweeners. Age of grace, done. You see, during Bible times, the cities that were around that were just named Tyre, Sidon, Philistia, Those are the places that the enemies of Israel resided. Isn't it interesting that we have given the enemies of Israel those exact same places to dwell in? When the Balfour Declaration was made and the original partition of the land that was to be given to Israel was mapped out, it actually included all of the land that principally was called the land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It included most of modern-day Jordan, more than half of modern-day Syria, all of modern-day Lebanon, all of the Gaza Strip, of course, parts of northern Egypt, all of the Sinai, all the way down into the Sinai Peninsula. And yet the UN said, "Mm, no, we're going to take some of that back. 
And by the time it was all said and done, when they were a nation again in 1948, they actually were already occupying less than half, actually about a third of the land that God originally gave to them. So what do you think's been happening this last few years as our president has been saying, well, you know, Israel just needs to give up more land. They just need to learn to get along better. We have been joining the side of the enemy from God's perspective. Not a wise thing. And so he says he's going to gather the wicked. He next says he's going to gather the warmongers. And I, when I look at this, I used to believe that this was a direct reference specifically to, and it's been a while that I've held this view, that this was still a direct reference to the Battle of Armageddon, but I don't believe so anymore. I think it's right after the Battle of Armageddon because I know mankind. Notice what it says. Proclaim among the nations. Prepare for war. Wake up, mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come and beat their plowshares into swords, your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am strong. Assemble, come, all you nations, and gather together around and cause your mighty ones to go down there, O Lord. He's actually mocking them. God's mocking the nations. Let the nations be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Now he says up. First he says down. What he's now saying is, is all you nations that are gathered around, you've been judged. Come on up. Anybody else want to come? For there I will sit and judge the surrounding nations and put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come and go down, for the winepress is full, the vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. It's as if God's throwing down the gauntlet one last time to the wicked nations. He's saying, look, when Jesus comes back, you remember there in Revelation 19, it says his eyes were like the flame of fire. He's coming back as the lion, not the lamb. Amen? On his head were many crowns, many diadems, kingly crowns. It's going to be very obvious he's coming back as a conquering king. He's not coming back as the meek Messiah. He's coming back as the conquering king. But I believe that mankind is so stubborn that that won't be enough, that they will still have a heart of rebellion even though they have been slaughtered at the Battle of Armageddon. And so the remaining people, whoever that is, the peoples of the earth that hadn't been decimated up to that point, that's how deep, deep the hatred for the Jews is. And you can see it in the world today. It's very clear. Revelation 19, verse 12 through 15, it says this, And he had a name written on himself that no one knew except himself. And he was clothed in a white robe dipped in blood, and his name was called the Word of God. What's Jesus' name? The Word. And the armies of heaven, be all of us and the angels, clothed in fine white, followed him on white horses. And now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, and with it he would strike the nations, and he himself... And this is why I believe that this is directly after the Battle of Armageddon. And he will rule over them with a rod of iron. And he himself treads out the winepress. What does he say? He says the winepress is full. What do you do after the winepress is full? You tread it out. The fierceness of his wrath 
For he has on his robe and on his thigh the name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen? What can people do? they got two choices. Either be saved or continue to be an ain't. Amen? If Jesus has come back as a conquering king, that means you're declaring war on the conquering king. Not a wise thing. It appears that they'll try and mobilize against the, the victor of the battle of Armageddon. And basically God's saying, go ahead, crank up your munitions, mobilize your men, do whatever you want to do. Come on down here and I'll judge you. You've already been defeated. And considering that, the the rise, the wars, the persecutions, as you realize that there's going to come a point in time, because you remember his kingdom is a kingdom of peace. Amen? His final kingdom is a kingdom of peace. So what does he have to wipe out in order for there to be a kingdom of peace? All war. Absolutely all war. What is the millennial reign of Christ? It's a kingdom of peace. What precedes it? The wiping out of all war. And a forced rule of righteousness. Verse 14 And he gathers the world now. He says, multitudes, multitudes into the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. He says, come where I have judged for millennia between the living and the dead, between those who are mine and those who aren't. The sun and the moon will grow dark, the stars will diminish their brightness, and the Lord also will roar from Zion. Amen? He's coming back as a conquering king. Yeah, I think one of the things that's most exciting to me is that as we look at this, there's going to be absolutely no way in the universe that you're not going to know that you have to make a choice. You see, right now people are kind of a little bit on the on the middle ground, aren't they? When you tell them, well, you know, when I get old and I can't sin very well, then I'll be a Christian. You ever notice that? It's like, well, no, there's just too much going on. I can't be saved right now. I've got to wait till later. There's going to come a point in time when you're not going to have that option. It's going to be infinitely clear that you have to make a choice right now to either join the Lord or to be perished eternally. And utter his voice from... Notice where? Jerusalem. The heavens, the earth will shake, but the Lord will be a shelter for his people. Amen. You see what he's always done? He's always said, I will save those who are mine. A remnant, one of Isaiah's sons was named, a remnant shall remain. God's always had a hand on his people. And he says, and I will be the strength of the children of Israel. That day's coming. And just because people say, well, you know, you could never have all those things happen. That's not a good bet, folks. You know, I'm not a betting guy. I believe that gambling actually is wrong. But I'll tell you this. I'm not taking the world's side in this one. Because what's at stake is eternity. Eternity. 
You see, the earth's remotest places will now bring their people to him. Nobody's going to be able to resist that final call. He's going to gather them together and say, look, here's the choice. Same choice, by the way, that Joshua made. What does Joshua 24 say? Choose this day whom you will serve. What was his response? As for me and my house, I will serve the Lord. Amen? That's always been the choice. Up to now, he's kind of given us some latitude and some liberty to dilly-dally around, to fiddle, to do kind of some dumb things, to dabble in sin. He's allowed us all kinds of freedom. But there is a day coming that is directly linked to God's land, God's people, the separation of the people from the land, that he says mankind is going to have no more choice. And when that day comes, everybody who's alive and remains at that time, if you aren't with the Lord, you're going to be against the Lord. I don't know about you. I'm not too excited about anybody I know going through that. So while we still have breath, probably a good time to tell people about Jesus. Amen? Because it sure looks like that scenario is coming closer and closer to being true. Not further, closer. Not more time, less. And if that's true... I know what my Bible says in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. few nanoseconds. Like that, gone. And then this stuff is three and a half years after that. Not a lot of time. Let's be busy about our Father's business. It's Christmas time. Don't let anybody get away with saying happy holidays. <laughs> Tell them Merry Christmas. Tell them happy Jesus' birthday. Go complete, just make them really upset. Tell them Jesus loves you. Jesus is the reason for the season. Use something other than happy holidays. Tell them you're glad that it's near Kwanzaa, but you believe that Jesus is the reason. Because he's the only name that can save. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. God, we pray again as your word commands us to do for the peace of Jerusalem. Lord, we ask you to have your hand upon your people. Lord, give our president and our Congress a wake-up call, God. They're on the wrong side. Not all of them, but many of them. Our president's pushing the wrong direction. Your word is very clear, and we're going to trust you what you say. And so, Lord, we pray that in these these days, Lord, which are very likely near the last, we ask you to make us strong and bold. Cause us to be your witnesses in this world. Lord, help us to never compromise on our unwavering support for your people, Israel. 
We pray that we would uh, bear in mind that there are eternal consequences for nations that rise up against them. Help us to preach the truth. Help us to do it in love. Lord, help us to be about Jesus. Lord, about Him and Him crucified for the remission of sin and for a newness of life. We bless you. We praise you. We thank you for this time. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.